0: Hello friends, and thanks for joining us today for the Hillcrest Covenant Church podcast. This week, Pastor Jen Zuri starts our new series called Radical. In this series, we will look at multiple ways in which Jesus' ministry and the Kingdom of God is totally flipped on its head. In this first sermon, Pastor Jen looks at a passage in Matthew 20, where Jesus teaches us that the first will be last and the last will be first. The kingdom of God is radically unfair, and thank God for that. Remember, you can watch our live stream that happens Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on YouTube, or you can always find us at HillcrestDeKalb.com. Grace and peace, friends. Well, growing up in a household where I had uh, two parents who were opposite from one another and two brothers who were opposite from one another— I know that I have mentioned here before that I I remember from a very, very early age just wanting to be in the middle. One of my parents was a Democrat and one was a Republican. One was well-educated and one wasn't. One was Jewish and one was Catholic. One came for money and one didn't. One was well-read and cultured and the other wasn't. One had quite a taste for fine things and the other was as blue-collar as they come. And then growing up with my two brothers, by the time we were all teenagers, one of my brothers was a straight-A student, the other one barely graduated high school. One never got into trouble a day in his life, and the other had, shall we say, maybe more than one run-in with the law. (laughs) One is super driven and focused. And the other one is kind of a, we'll just ride the world's wave to see where it takes you kind of guy. And so there I was in this household full of what seemed to me to be extremes. And I didn't want to be like any of them. I just wanted to be somewhere in the middle. I I wasn't attracted to any one side of any one spectrum. I saw the value in the way both of my parents engaged the world and I saw value in both of the ways that my brothers engaged the world, but none of those were the ways that I wanted. I just wanted to be somewhere in the middle. I wanted to be successful, but success does not drive me. I didn't want to be singularly focused as as the one brother was, but I'm not as free-spirited as my other brother. I valued the political perspectives of my Democrat parent, as well as my Republican parent. I feel like I was made to be in the middle. And so extremism in, in any fashion for me is beyond my understanding. I, I grew up playing sports, but, but I'd like to say I played normal sports, softball, basketball, golf. You would not see me participating in, a, in an extreme sport for all of the money in all of the world. Never have I been one of those people who crave what I presume is an unhealthy adrenaline rush that comes along with extreme sports. And just to be honest, you will never find me at the extreme end of either side of politics. In fact, I think our more recent tendency toward polarization in politics is ruining our country. The extreme end of both sides are damaging and demoralizing and divisive, and you will never find me supporting either end. You'll also never find me at any end of of the religious extremism spectrum. Religious extremism of any kind, Muslim to Christian, has caused destruction and damage and death beyond words. And, And I realize for those of you who might be newer to church, you might be thinking... Uh, you're you're a pastor. I'm pretty sure that means you've already gone all in on religion. But I want to be clear about that. I am all in on Jesus. And I believe that it was Jesus's plan to use the church to make his name known, but I am all in on Jesus. I am not all in on religion. But it got me thinking... You know, obviously we celebrated Easter last week, which means that we just walked through this season that the church calls Lent. Lent is that 40-day period where we're taking a look at Jesus' last days on earth. And I was with some people the Friday before Palm Sunday, And one of them made a comment about how they just really struggled to believe that some of the same people who were waving palm branches to honor Jesus as he entered Jerusalem may have been some of the same people who were shouting, crucify him, just a few days later. And that got me thinking about my propensity to sit in the middle, which made me think, huh. Knowing what I know about me... And knowing what I know about Jesus, I'm not sure that I would have followed Jesus had I been around when he was here on earth. Not only can I see how people followed the mob mentality and went from waving palm branches to yelling crucify him, I'm not sure I would have even have been a part of the crowd waving palm branches to begin with. One of the things that I I like to do after our our Easter celebration is to give us a little bit of a glimpse into the one whose life and death and ultimately resurrection continues to cause the church to celebrate in such an elaborate manner as we did last week and as we do each year. And so this week we are beginning just a real short three-week series that we're calling Radical. Now if you look up the word radical in the dictionary, there are three main definitions. The first one pertains to to the root of a plant or the root of a disease. I suppose my brother who is in, what's that called, horticulture, he probably knows all that stuff. I only know it from the medical field, you hear about somebody having like a radical mastectomy, right? It means it's radical because they're trying to get at the root of the disease before it can progress, now, I really could, and I'm, I'm somewhat tempted at some point now, to do a whole separate sermon on why that definition also applies to our message this morning, but that isn't the portion of the definition that we're going to work with today. So that's the first meaning of the word radical. The third meaning of the word radical is, is uh, slang for excellent or cool. Remember those of you who were around in the 80s or 90s when that became part of our, our vernacular? That's Radical which turned into, that's rad, which you now still only hear from like surfboarding Californians, or maybe Patrick. Do you, I feel like you still say that. You still say rad. I feel like you do. He can pull it off. I can't pull that off. He can pull that off. And now, while I happen to think that Jesus was pretty rad, that's also not the portion of the definition that we're working with in this series. The the definition that we're working with is the second one, which we're going to put up here. Very different from the usual or traditional, extreme. Favoring extreme changes in existing views, habits, conditions, or institutions. Associated with political views, practices, and policies of extreme change. Advocating extreme measures to retain or restore a political state of affairs. And I apologize, I don't know why it just says the radical right, because there's a radical left, there's a radical all the things, right? So favoring extreme changes in existing views, habits, conditions, or institutions. I'm not sure if I would have followed Jesus back then, because Jesus was the dictionary definition of radical. And we're going to spend the next three weeks looking at just a few of the many things that Jesus said that prove that he favored extreme changes in existing views and habits and conditions and institutions. It's easy for those of us who call ourselves Christians today to look at the people who were physically around Jesus at the time that he was on earth and to judge them for the decisions that they made. We stand indignant that people welcomed him as king and then crucified him as criminal just days later. But have you ever really wondered which crowd you would have stood in? Had this radical leader wandered into the middle of our culture and told us that we are now to do everything in an upside-down, opposite manner from which we were used to? How easily would you have jumped on that train? For instance, let's take a look at our story for this morning. One of the things that we know about Jesus is that he understood humanity. He knew that humans learn best from stories. And so stories, or parables, were Jesus' primary way of teaching. And so he would tell these stories about that used kind of all types of people in all types of situations that would have been commonplace at that particular time in that culture to help make whatever point he was trying to make. Some of his parables had very clear, very obvious points Some of them still have interpretations that are being argued over to this day. That said, let's look at our story for this morning. It comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew. You're welcome to grab a Bible in front of you, or it'll be up on the screen here, or you can listen, just listen along. It's Matthew chapter 20. We're going to start right at verse 1. It's called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. And so they went. He went out again about noon, and excuse me, and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. And about five in the afternoon, he went around and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long? "'Because no one has hired us,' they answered. "'He said to them, "'You also go and work in my vineyard.' "'When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, "'Call the workers and pay them their wages, "'beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. "'The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon "'came and each received a denarius. "'So when those who were who were hired first, they expected to receive more, "'but each one of them also received a denarius.' When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only an hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. When was the first time that you learned that life wasn't fair? My guess is that most of us probably don't remember the first time that we learned that, because most of us learned that pretty early on in life, particularly if you grew up with siblings. Right? There is nothing like having siblings to quickly inform you that life is not fair. When I was 16 years old, I came down on Easter morning, ready for our annual Easter basket hunt. I was atrocious at finding my Easter basket, or anything really, but I loved the the search nonetheless. And so that Easter I came downstairs and there was this little bowl of chocolate eggs sitting on the kitchen counter and I was unpeeling one, and I turned to my parents and said, can I start looking for my Easter basket? at which point they told me that we were too old for Easter baskets. And so they didn't do them this year. Or the Easter bunny didn't bring them this year. (laughs) To which I naturally responded with the three most spoken words of childhood. That's not fair. Because it wasn't fair. My oldest brother, Jeff, is six years older than me. Which means that my last Easter basket was at the age of 15 but he got Easter baskets till he was 21. (laughs) How fair is that? Now, just to be fair to those of you who are oldest or middle children, on the flip side, when I was 17 years old, I got to go on a road trip with my two best friends, who are also youngest children, and we drove to New Hampshire for spring break. We were 17 years old, pre-cell phone era. And our siblings were furious that our parents let us go to New Hampshire for spring break because there was no way that our parents would have let any of our oldest siblings go that far when they were 17 years old. But, life isn't fair. (laughs) Sometimes I wonder what it would have been like to have been born into one of those super wealthy families that have multiple homes and private jets and get to vacation all over the world. Those people who have like a staff in their house to cook and clean and drive them around. And I just wonder what it would be like to have that as your normal life. Then again, I also wonder why I got to be born here. Into the family and the life that I did with all of the opportunities that were handed to me. As opposed to the millions of people around the world who are born into hunger and poverty that they will never be able to get out of no matter how hard they work. But life isn't fair, is it? But really, it's our sense of fairness and our sense of justice. Isn't that mostly connected to what we want or how we want to be treated? Isn't that part of the irony of fairness? We live in a world that has somehow convinced us that your success must mean my failure. That there are only so many slices of the pie, and if you get one, I go without we often struggle to root for each other's happiness and success as if there's only so much to go around. And clearly it has been that way since the beginning of time. Because when we read that story that I just read, that parable from Matthew, we initially think, well, that's not fair. Those workers who were chosen first were cheated. That's unfair. But those workers weren't cheated. The owner of the property... Hired, we'll call them Alvin, Simon, and Theodore, first thing in the morning. And he said, I will pay you 100 bucks if you work until 5 o'clock. And Alvin and Simon and Theodore said, OK, we'll take 100 bucks and we'll work till 5 o'clock. And so they worked exactly as they said they would. And then they were paid exactly as they were promised. But then a little later, Larry and Moe and Curly got hired, and boss man told him he'd pay them 100 bucks too. But they worked the hours they said they would and they got paid the amount of money that they said they would. And then Benny and the Jets got hired a little later. I don't know, I was tired when I was writing this. (laughs) I apologize. They got hired at like five o'clock and the boss man said he'd pay them $100 too and they worked the whole hour that they said they were gonna work and they got paid exactly the $100 that they said they were gonna get paid. So who got cheated here? Well, Americans, were looking at that going, well, Alvin and Simon and Theodore got cheated. But they didn't. They were hired. They chose to work. They were clearly given the parameters of their work. They agreed. They were told how much money they'd get for their work. They agreed to that. They worked exactly as hard as they said that they would work, and they got paid exactly what they were told they were going to get paid. But they cried foul, to which the boss man said, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a hundred bucks? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I give to you. Don't I have the right to do with my money whatever I want? Or are you envious because I am generous? There's the rub, isn't it? Is it the boss man's fault that Alvin and Simon and Theodore assumed that they would get paid more than the others? Or that they think that they deserve to get paid more than the others. But isn't the real question, why are they thinking about the others at all? They got paid exactly what they agreed to work for. They got cheated out of nothing. Except that we have this tendency of thinking that what happens in our favor is good luck. But that what happens to our disadvantage is unjust. And so our sense of justice is undeniably both selfish and subjective. One of my seminary professors, his name is Klein Snodgrass, he wrote this incredible and incredibly complex book on the parables, and in it he said this, The life of God's kingdom, with its focus on communal love, cannot be experienced as long as we are comparing ourselves with others and calculating what is due us or being envious of what others receive. He said, even while we speak of justice, none of us is satisfied with average. We always think we deserve a little more. I love the way that Klein talks about God's kingdom. This is precisely why we're doing this series, to teach us or or to remind us how radically different God's kingdom is, from the culture that we have built, whether that was the culture from 2,000 years ago or the one that we are in today, the same thing applies. Jesus clearly favored extreme changes in existing views and habits and conditions and institutions. He was as radical a person as they had ever seen. We live in a culture, same as they did, where the rich and the famous are number one, Where to be first, you have to be at the top. And to be at the top, you have to be the best. Or you have to be the prettiest. Or you have to be the most talented or the wealthiest. But in God's kingdom, as Jesus said at the end of this parable in Matthew, the last will be first and the first will be last. And really, it's not even that the first will be last. It's that God will bring a sense of justice and fairness that might not meet our criteria for justice or fairness. Why? Because God's entire being, God's whole kingdom, has mercy as its foundation. Now, I preached on mercy just a month ago or so. And in that message, I said that that we only appreciate mercy in as much as it is applied to ourselves. Right? When mercy is extended to others, particularly to those whom we don't think deserve it, then suddenly we're not so much a fan of God's generosity of spirit anymore. Do you remember the story of Jonah and the whale? God asked Jonah to go to Nineveh and Jonah refused to go and he went in the opposite direction. And a big whale or big fish, we'll go with a big whale, that's what we were taught. A big whale swallows him, so the story goes. But I want to ask you this, as a child, what was the reason that you were told that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? You can answer out loud. <laughs> he didn't want to obey Jesus. He didn't want to obey Jesus? Okay. was anybody else taught anything else? He didn't well, that's you're not, this is the real answer. Is that where you were taught as a kid? How many of you were taught that, that he was afraid to go? That he was scared to go? That's what we often teach kids. <laughs> Haley, you're too smart. Shh. Just gonna ruin my punchline. <laughs> I think we're often taught you know, that he didn't want to obey Jesus or that he was scared to go, right? But that's not really the whole situation. We still kind of teach kids that, that sometimes God asks us to do things that we're afraid to do. It's a good, it's a good lesson. It's a good story, but that's not why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to go to Nineveh for one singular reason. Life isn't fair. You see, the Ninevites were horrible, horrible, awful, terrible people. They were masters of war, and they bragged about their torturous and cruel and horrific behavior and all the ways in which they would kill their enemies. They took joy in mass executions, and they literally sat around thinking about new ways to kill people slowly. Seriously. They were horrid, horrid people. And God told Jonah to go to those people, to speak to those people about their horrible, wicked ways. Jonah wasn't afraid to go talk to them just because he was afraid. He was afraid to go talk to them because he did not think that they deserved what God had for them. But it wasn't his decision to make. God's generosity means that God's mercy is not handed out according to any human scale or decision. God did the very thing that Jonah feared he was going to do. Jonah did go to Nineveh and he did tell the people about God and they did turn from their evil ways and God showed them mercy and compassion in spades and Jonah was so mad. In fact, he was so mad that God was compassionate to the Ninevites that he told God to take his life, that he would rather be dead than watch these horrible people get saved. And we think, yikes, Jonah. Like, that's that's a little extreme. But it's really no different than what Jesus is trying to say in this parable in Matthew. How am I being unfair to you? Why is your attention over here? Stay in your own lane and know that you have no control over my generosity And no say over how and when and to whom I extend mercy. And why should you stay in your own lane? Because you didn't deserve God's compassion and mercy any more than they did. If you think life is unfair, wait until you fully experience just how unfair is the kingdom of God. God is radically merciful. He does not dish it out according to our human sense of justice. And when we are the recipients of that, oh man, are we so grateful for it? But when others are, life is unfair. To make matters worse, a lot of people believe that the workers in this parable all represented the hierarchy of their time. Meaning that the first group of workers represented the strongest and the most capable. Those who were healthiest and those who had the means to arrive first thing in the morning ready to work. While those who were hired last were meant to represent those who have been left standing at the end of their day, at the end of the culture, those people that nobody wanted. They would have represented the poor, the weak, the sick, the disabled, the elderly, and others who were marginalized in their time like like criminals or people who had bad, bad reputations that landowners did not want to hire. They were the weakest of society. And so that means that God is not only merciful, far beyond our liking, but that he is merciful to people that we think least deserve it. And then... Jesus goes one step further when he says to the angry workers who were hired first, don't I have any right to do with my own money what I want to? Or are you envious because I am generous? Meaning, not only are we angry that God gives compassion and mercy away so freely, but we're angry that we aren't that generous with our own lives. We are jealous of what God gives to others. And it's not even that we're jealous that God gives to others things that we wish we had. It's, it's when God gives things to others that we think they don't deserve. That really gets under our skin. But they were late. But they didn't work as hard. But they aren't good people. This is especially difficult for we church people who have been trying to earn our way to God by doing all of the right churchy things and doing, coming to all the right churchy places, and then God extends the same mercy to the guy who up until yesterday had wasted his entire life. We are envious of God's power to forgive and God's control over who is forgiven and how. We want mercy if we're standing next to somebody who looks better than us, But the moment we're standing next to someone who doesn't, then we no longer want to be equal recipients of all that God has to offer. This radical Jesus in his own words has made it very clear that the kingdom of God is unfair by human standards. But the same Jesus also made it clear that all of the gifts that God has ever had to offer come in limitless quantities. God uses language of abundance, not of lack. God's economy isn't one that suggests that if you get, I go without. Whatever it is we need in this life, God has enough of it to know that we don't have to be anything but supportive and encouraging and uplifting to the success of other people. Imagine. Imagine all of the energy that we would get back in this life if we stopped wasting our time comparing our lives to other people. Imagine all of the energy that we would get back if we stopped playing judge and jury to other people or weighing in on what we think other people do and do not deserve. Friends, the honest truth is that not only is this life unfair, but that the kingdom of God is wildly unfair. And thank God that it is. Or none of us would be in it. Let's pray together. God, we love to talk about how unfair this life is. We love to point out all the things that are unfair and all of the ways that we have been wronged and all of the things that are unjust. And typically, they revolve around us. Typically, they revolve around what we want and what we think we deserve and how we think we should get it and what we think other people don't deserve. God, would you help us to stop wasting our energy on that? Would you help us to stay in our own lane and to realize, Lord, that we we were no more or less deserving of your mercy than the person next to us or the person behind us or the person we like least in this whole world? When we're quick to assume that someone isn't deserving of something that they get, would you humble us? And when others around us succeed, would you help us to be their biggest fan? Would you remind us, Lord, that in your economy, you are a God of abundance, not a God of lack, that there is nothing that we need that you will not provide? And so, God, may we learn to be merciful as you are merciful. May we learn to do with the gifts that you have given us whatever we want in your name that blesses other people, that we would learn, Lord, to, to live into the way that you see other people and the way that you see the world and not into our own sense of what is just or fair. We thank you this morning, Lord, that your kingdom is wildly unfair. And we thank you that because you made us, because you love us, and because you saved us, that we get to be a part of it. We pray all these things in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.